0: Law and Gospel, from the sermon series, Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Pastor David Hulsang. So good morning, Metro. It was so good to see some of you in person two Sundays ago. We look forward to seeing more of you in two weeks' time, and also at Easter, and hopefully more regularly as our year unfolds. Thank you for joining us online today. Well, even if you're just a casual observer of events, you may be familiar with people in recent times who have made fake messianic claims, like Reverend Moon of the Unification Church, who considered himself to be the second coming of Christ and is believed by his loyal followers to be the Messiah. Remember that wacko from Waco, Texas? David Koresh, who saw himself as a messianic figure fulfilling God's commission? Then there are also fake and failed prophetic claims, like recent ones from a certain segment of Christianity predicting that the former president of the United States would win re-election for a second term. Some of these so-called prophets have now repented of their error. Others still maintain victory and fraud. And some even predicted that the former president would miraculously return to power like this past Thursday, March 4th. Today, we look at someone who made shocking claims to be the Messiah. He spoke with authority and claimed to be the prophetic fulfillment of their most holy writings. He's none other than Jesus, the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, which we're presently studying. But before we get to this passage, let's pray. Father, we live in a fake world. People with false claims and false information. And sometimes we don't know who or what to believe. We pray this morning for hungry, teachable, discerning hearts. Speak to us through the words of Jesus, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and give us the courage to respond in obedience to you. Amen. So we started this year looking at perhaps the most well-known, but least understood, the most powerful, but least practiced sermon in the Bible, known as the Sermon on the Mount. First, we looked at the eight Beatitudes, which focus on the character of God's kingdom citizens, the true, genuine, authentic Christians. Last Sunday, Pastor Ansel led us to the next section, which focuses on the influence of true Christians as salt and light in a decomposing Dark world. I was particularly encouraged to receive a long email this week from a friend with whom I had a phone conversation last week. At the end of our conversation, as we prayed together, we asked that she would be salt and light, particularly in her home and in her workplace. In her email, she shared excitedly some encouraging encounters with people whom she serves at work, and small but significant breakthroughs with some non-Christian family members. So the encouragement to you today is to continue to be salt and light wherever you are, even if you don't see immediate, tangible results. Today, we begin with the introduction of another new and major section of the Sermon on the Mount. In his commentary on Matthew, my friend and former colleague, Mike Wilkins, claims that these four verses provide the key to interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 5, 17 to 20, which will be projected on your screen. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has dropped the mic. Please hear me carefully because if you get this, you get the bottom line of Jesus' teaching in this passage. Jesus is not contrasting the law of Moses with the law or teaching of Jesus, but affirming his total fulfillment of the law. Also, Jesus was not contradicting the law of Moses but contradicting teachers' false traditional interpretation of the law and affirming God's true original intent of the law. These verses address crucial life questions that are relevant to both true and fake Christians as well as hungry or skeptical non-Christians. They answer questions such as who Is the real Jesus? Who are real Christians or real kingdom people? Today we focus on two truths about Jesus found in this passage. So let's look at the first truth in verses 17 and 18. Matthew 5, 17 to 18 again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So let's just clarify a few things that Jesus is saying here. The law and the prophets is a reference to the entire Jewish scriptures. The law represents the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The prophets include the former prophets, the historical books, and the latter prophets, the major and minor prophets, plus the wisdom books. Sometimes Jewish scripture is abbreviated as the law or expanded as the law, the prophets, and the the writings, or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Essentially, Jesus is referring to what we Christians today call the Old Testament. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, some Jews, particularly religious folks, like our modern-day Saturday night live church lady, may have been thinking that Jesus was planning to abolish demolish and destroy the law of Moses. Incrementing evidence for this was when Jesus broke their laws by doing work on the Sabbath day of rest, like healing people during church service. Here, Jesus immediately destroys the idea that he came to destroy the law. And using the expression, truly I tell you, in verses 18 and 20, which he uses even more emphatically six more times in this chapter, Jesus is asserting his unique authority in interpreting the law, exceeding the authority of the scribes and Pharisees, who would teach not on their authority, but quote the authority of respected rabbis. The smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Yod, spelled Yoda without the A at the end. And it looks like a small English apostrophe. The least stroke of a pen, the NIV translation, refers to the small distinguishing marks, such as a protruding line or extra stroke that distinguish letters from the Hebrew alphabet like the Hebrew letter D or Daleth, which basically is a vertical and a horizontal line with a little edge protruding. And the Resh, or the R, which kind of looks like a curved arc. They look very similar, but the R kind of looks like, the Resh kind of looks like a smooth, sandpapered version of Daleth at the top. So here, Jesus declares that not even the smallest detail of the law will be changed until heaven and earth disappear or until everything is accomplished when God creates the new heaven and the new earth at the climax of history. Jesus' point here is that he's not here even to make the most minor changes in the law which will stand until the final day. So negatively Jesus did not come to abolish the scriptures. Positively Jesus came to fulfill them. The word Jesus here uses here literally means to fill, to fill up. Well scholars have proposed various interpretations as to what Jesus means here by fulfill Based on the Gospel of Matthew and the context of this sermon, Jesus emphasizes two specific fulfillments. So, the first truth about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus fulfills all Scripture. In particular, Jesus fulfills all Scripture, a in its predictive prophecy. Matthew is a gospel that is specially written for Jews who are familiar or should be familiar with the scriptures. In the first four chapters of Matthew, preceding the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew quotes from scripture six times to demonstrate Jesus' fulfillment of messianic prophecies. He quotes from Isaiah three times Jeremiah, Hosea and Micah one time each. So for the sake of time, we just mention two that we often visit at Christmas time. Matthew 1:22 quotes Isaiah 7:14 regarding the circumstances of Messiah's birth, which was fulfilled in the Virgin conceiving, giving birth to a son who would be named Immanuel which means with us, God, or God with us. Matthew 2.6 quotes Micah 5.2 regarding the birthplace of the Messiah, which was fulfilled in the really, really little town of Bethlehem, the birthplace of King David, through whose line the Messiah would come. So, Jesus fulfills all scripture In its predictive prophecy. But also, Jesus fulfills all scripture in its ethical interpretation. We'll revisit some of this later today and in subsequent weeks. But for now, we note that God gave his people laws. Not because God was a meanie, a killjoy, a legalist, or a prude. His laws are meant to be obeyed, not slavishly, but freely, not mindlessly, but intelligently, not grudgingly, but joyfully. God is smarter than us human beings, so he gave his people good laws for them to flourish. If you're a good parent, you have rules in your family Like with little kids, hold my hand when we cross the road or you may get killed. Or with older kids, don't mess with drugs or you may kill yourself. Our human problem is that when we mess with God's instructions, we screw them up. For example, the Jewish teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, examined scripture with a fine-tooth comb, identified 613 laws, and classified them in the categories of light laws and heavy laws. For you sticklers and nerds, they identified 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions, giving a grand total of 613 laws in scripture. But not content with that, These teachers developed detailed, specific ways that particular laws ought to be obeyed punctiliously, and yes, how they could be circumvented cunningly without legally breaking them. They were more concerned about keeping the letter of the law, like some crafty New York attorneys, rather than keeping the spirit of the law, They were more concerned about looking good before others rather than being good before God, being in a healthy, loving, obedient relationship with him. So what's the response to this? If I ask you the question, who's the most important person in your life? Well, as good church people, we know that the theologically correct answer is God or Jesus. But how much do you know about the Lord? Even more importantly, how much do you know the Lord who has revealed himself primarily in Scripture? Granted, that knowledge about the Lord does not guarantee knowledge of the Lord, but true, intelligent, experiential knowledge of the Lord is based on knowledge about the Lord revealed in scripture. Alarmingly and shamelessly, we have become more semi-illiterate dunces of scripture even as we become more literate in trivia, which doesn't impress God, and will not count squat, nada, zero on the final day. So let's do a quick spot checkup. Do your kids, and or you, know more about dinosaurs and Pokemon characters than about the books of the Bible and significant Bible verses that nourish your soul? Pastor Mike suggested, perhaps mischievously, that we do quick dinosaur and Pokemon quizzes as well as a Bible quiz, and intimated that many of us would do much better on the first quizzes. Funny, but not funny. Do we know more about the lives of pop stars, movie stars, and stars famous for nothing? than about the lives of women and men in the Bible who inspire us to live for God and for his purpose for life? Do we spend hours a week on social media, gaming, TV, Korean dramas, and trivial online searches, and only a few minutes, if any, with God? listening and speaking to him through solitude and silence, through the word and prayer. And we wonder why we feel like we have a spiritual tummy ache or are spiritually constipated by this diet and lifestyle. Larry Crabb, who passed away last week, described the books of the Bible as six to six love letters from God. I still remember the time that Betty and I were first dating. I wanted to know everything about her. And though I was busy researching my master's dissertation and Betty had a full load as a high school English teacher, we tried to hang out in Chicago as many evenings as possible together. When I returned to Jamaica after the summer to teach and pastor, we wrote each other every day and read each other's mail eagerly. For Lent and hopefully beyond, Pastor Shirley is practicing the principle of no Bible, no breakfast, meaning that the spiritual food precedes the physical food in the morning. We just mentioned six Messianic Old Testament texts from Matthew 1 through 4 a few minutes ago, and we already identified two. So here's a 101 assignment that will help you to learn how Jesus fulfills Scripture in the prophecies about him. Simply Google something like Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, read these Bible references, and reflect on them thoughtfully. A 201 assignment of learning how Jesus fulfills Scripture is to read through the Gospel of Matthew and note where an Old Testament text is quoted as being fulfilled in Jesus. I believe there are 18 fulfillments. A 301 assignment is to read through Psalms or Isaiah and recall how some of these verses are quoted in the New Testament as referring to Jesus. Profitable study, I did that recently with Isaiah. One suggestion here if you have problems with motivation and discipline, find a training partner or training partners. I guarantee that this will help you to develop a greater love and appreciation for your Lord and Savior. It will give you a greater confidence that you've put your trust in the right person, the true Messiah, the Son of the living God. I guarantee that it will give you a greater motivation and confidence to share the good news of Jesus with someone who is not yet a Christian. So truth number one, Jesus fulfills scripture. Let's now look at truth number two. Jesus explains real righteousness. Before we look at these remaining two verses, let's recap what Jesus has already said on righteousness in this passage, in this sermon. Beatitude 4 states, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Beatitude 8 states, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To fill out the salvation picture, post-resurrection of Jesus, Christians receive righteousness, also known as justification, the identical word in Greek, not by their works, but by faith in the work of Jesus's redemptive death and resurrection for them. See Romans 4 and 5. Christians develop righteousness of character and conduct, pleasing to God, with the help of the birthing, indwelling Holy Spirit, also known as sanctification. See Romans 6 through 8. In verse 19, Jesus addresses a practical aspect of real righteousness. Verse 19 Therefore, anyone who sets aside any one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that first, therefore, at the beginning of the verse. And whenever you see a therefore, it is therefore a particular purpose. Here, based on Jesus' fulfillment of the law in the first two verses, here's what ought to follow. Firstly, real righteousness is partially external. Real righteousness is demonstrated in righteous or right actions. Well, real righteous actions are not necessary, but they're necessary, but they're not sufficient conditions for real righteousness. Jesus first states the negative and then the positive of real righteousness. So here's an example of negative and positive righteousness. There's a couple I met at our previous church. The gal was an eager, hungry new Christian who dragged her boyfriend to our SFI courses. SFI stands for Spiritual Formation Institute, similar to our MIT Metro Institute of Transformation. The guy grew up in church, but I observed that he was not very biblically literate. For example, I noticed that he would first look at the table of contents in the Bible when we asked participants to look at various scripture passages. And admit it, some of us use the search function to find scripture now. Well, the gal approached me after class one night and asked me if we could get together sometime. I had no idea of the topic of our appointment and what it would be. When we met, the gal who was raised in a nominal Catholic home mentioned that she was a new Christian, unlike her boyfriend who was a Christian for a number of years. From what she knew and recently read in our Bible study in First Corinthians, she felt convicted that she was not being obedient to God in them living together with benefits as an unmarried couple. So after thanking her for her honesty and vulnerability in sharing this, I turned to the guy who had been dragged to the appointment and asked him, so what do you think about her concerns? Well, he began, well, you know, there are various schools of thought on this subject in the Bible. And so I asked him, looking quite curious, so what are these schools of thought, different schools of thought, and where do you actually find it in Scripture? Well, needless to say, he had no good answer and was merely trying to rationalize his selfish behavior and convince his baby Christian babe to follow his rationalized rational lies. Thankfully, this story has a good ending. Shortly afterwards, I did their premarital preparation, officiated at a wedding, and the last time I heard from them a few Christmases ago, they were doing well as a Christian family and are strongly connected to a church community. The negative point here is that this guy was setting aside God's command and teaching someone else to do so. The positive point is that the gal was intent on practicing and teaching God's commands, even to an older Christian who knew better or should have known better. So parents and teachers, kids are sometimes God's secret agent to teach and remind you of the importance of full obedience to God. So what about you? Has the Holy Spirit been convicting you about obedience to a particular command in scripture? Are you presently choosing to disobey and perhaps even convincing others to disobey? Or are you obeying now and feeling the need to be all in for yourself on both the outside and inside, and wanting to encourage friends to follow you in this. If you want to be guaranteed God's favor now and on the final day, when he will honor you as great, a winner in the kingdom, and not least a loser in the kingdom, then continue to obey or begin to obey and teach others to obey God. So real righteousness is partially external. But even more important, verse 20 reads, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Real righteousness is Primarily internal. In summary, Jesus is saying that entry into God's kingdom is impossible with fake righteousness, mere external legalistic compliance to the law. Unlike the Pharisees and teachers of the law, Jesus was not interested in compliance with the letter of the law, but in loving obedience to the spirit of the law. Entry into God's kingdom is based on true righteousness and internal loving obedience to the Lord. As I read mentioned, our passage today is an introduction to the rest of Matthew 5, which gives six examples of the marked contrast between religious righteousness and real righteousness with Jesus using the motif, you have heard it was said, followed by, but I say to you. Sometimes the first part of the actual statement of the law is a statement of the law or an extrapolation or interpretation of it. But Jesus is not contradicting the law, but contradicting the traditional interpretation and practice of it. In the first example, Jesus quotes the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, but says that if you get so angry with someone that you cuss them off, perhaps feel like strangling them, wishing they were dead or assassinating their character, while you cannot legally be charged with murder, you have sinned and you're liable to God's judgment. Similarly, The second example, Jesus quotes the seventh commandment and declares that even if you have not physically committed adultery by having sex with someone with whom you're not married, lust or mental adultery in such forms as fantasy or pornography is also sin. Clearly, Jesus is not lowering the bar for kingdom citizens. He is raising it by explaining the real intention. Jesus continues this theme in Matthew chapter 6 by contrasting religious righteousness with real righteousness in such areas as giving money, praying, and fasting. But I won't steal these preachers' thunder by commenting on these passages. I'll just share a personal story. Recently, the Hosangs have been beset with some annoying house issues, like a frozen HVAC unit, which sent the in- inside temperature of our house down to 62 degrees. But the one I'll mention is a faulty roof, which caused considerable water leakage and some damage to our master bedroom ceiling. After four unsuccessful attempts with continued leaking, The repairs were declared complete by our management company about a year or so ago. The crazy thing about our homeowners covenant is that the management is responsible for outside repairs, but the homeowner is responsible for inside repairs, even if the damage is caused by outside problems. Our insurance company conveniently estimated damages under our $500 deductible. So we actually had to fork out $500 to have our ceiling repaired and repainted. The management company, perhaps embarrassed by these hassles, verbally offered to help pay for ceiling repairs, but never came through. The evil thought of withholding our Christmas gift from our manager did cross my mind but we did not. And we have maintained cordial relationships with her and our gatekeepers, not merely because they know that I'm a pastor, but because we know that before God, our righteousness ought to surpass that of merely religious church people. A good offshot of this was when our ceiling started leaking again over this past Christmas. The manager was on vacation, but was on it like a flash and quickly approved major roof repairs, which supposedly were completed just this past Monday. Yesterday, they contacted us about fixing our ceiling, maybe next week. But whether or not they fixed our ceiling, we intend and continue to pursue righteousness that exceeds that of a normal homeowner or even a religious homeowner who may kick up a stink or resort to litigation. I actually plan to write a thank you note to our manager when the work gets done, uh, hopefully, this week. And by the way, for those those of you who have visited us, thank you so much for displaying your righteousness in your patience, pleasantness, and respectfulness. This has not gone unnoticed by our gatehouse guards who have commented that we have some really nice friends. In fact, one jokingly said that if one of our visiting friends was single, he'd marry her. As kingdom citizens, Jesus challenges us to demonstrate real righteousness on the outside with right actions of obedience to God. But even more importantly, we are to live real righteousness on the inside with a right relationship with God reflected in a relationship of obedient love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, the fulfiller of Scripture as the true Messiah, and our ultimate teacher. Thank you for his powerful teaching on religious righteousness versus real righteousness. May we be kingdom people who practice outside righteousness because of our inside righteousness. Amen. So let's respond to God personally by turning to our communication card app for next steps. Next steps, and these next steps could be one or more than one. Step number one, I'm saying yes to Jesus and becoming a kingdom citizen today no longer delaying. Step number two, I will do a search this week of messianic prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Step number three, I will develop and execute a doable, measurable, sustainable scripture reading plan to know God better. Step number four, I will focus this week on obeying God in one area in which I struggle or rationalize. Step number five, I will focus this week on my inner righteousness of loving obedience to God. Step number six, I'm signing up to write Easter cards to our brothers in East New Jersey State Prison. And finally, with more news to follow, I will participate in our Holy Week experience and Easter service this year.